back with Chris Dowsett again. Hi, Chris. Tyler, <laughs> it is so good to be on your podcast. Some, something about this inspires me every time to like to even think and start caring about the thing that we're going to talk about. Because I think, oh, <laughs> I give yeah, you I do think about this a lot. Yeah, I sharpen you. All right. This is a bit of a, well, it's going to start as a follow-up to a YouTube video I did a little while ago, which mm. was uh, about my work, Lightroom workflow. Actually, did you watch it? I didn't even ask you if you watched it now. I, 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 don't, I don't remember. I think I did. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. You don't I had to. a couple of things you, to say You about know it. the things I was talking about in it. So. I had a couple of things to say about it. I'm going to start by answering some of the questions that came through after it. So if you're listening to this episode, I think it's worth quickly watching that video, which is it's relatively short compared to this podcast. This is going to be about an hour, and that video is like 10 minutes. And this only matters to us, but it's really, really hot in here. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, like, it is warm. Just so everyone knows, we're in a sweat lodge. We will, we will do our best. So assuming you've seen the rough outline of, of how I work, here are some of the questions that came in. Hopefully, they are useful for anybody listening. And uh, I'm sorry if I missed any, but this is, this is what came in at the time of recording. And I actually, I think I have some showing up on my phone right now. So I'll check in towards the end of the episode, see if anything else came up. First question comes from, I'm not going to try to read names, uh, Jake Long 66F. Uh, I may have missed this, but do you export when, what do you export when you export? All the non-rejected photos, two stars or five stars? Um, and so a lot of what I talked about during that episode is that I use star ratings to identify good photos. And the reason for this is it's it's more scalable in the long run so that two years from now, you know that a five-star means the same thing as it did a few years ago. Whereas if you're flagging picks, that can be really project-dependent, right? And I just find that stars scale better. So often when I've gone through and rated everything between one and five, usually about uh, three is my export level. So I give myself between like, you know, one and two are just like getting rid of the, the junk. And at three is where I, usually that's all the deliverable stuff. Sometimes. I also need to qualify that my workflow breaks for me often because I'm working with my wife. We have two computers and two different Lightroom catalogs and that totally screws everything up. It, I have not solved that problem. The, so the workflow I've explained is for one person not working in my environment. So when the two of us are working together, we just go past three stars sometimes because like we're, I can't get her to fully buy in on, on my plan. But it uh, typically, yeah, that's kind of what I aim for. Um, do you use star ratings? Um, I don't. I think I don't want to ramble too much on how I feel about this specifically, other than I think it's important that the way you choose to organize single shoots scales from shoot to shoot and really question whether or not you you actually are using the best method on the small scale that fits the large scale. Like, is a three-star rating generally the same like, or could they all be thought to be roughly the same quality as you see the whole catalog of maybe the year of shooting and whatever you do, do that thing. And it will make it tremendously easier over the, over the long run. For instance, if you do star ratings, do star ratings. Yeah. Commit. If you do color ratings, do color ratings. The second you really start to overlap the different types of labels that you can give individual photos or, or batches of photos. Like if you use color sometimes and stars, sometimes you're going to not have the ability to go to Lightroom's automatically generated catalogs or not catalog, but it'll, uh, if you, on the left side of the interface, you toggle down their smart collections and they're automatically generated smart collections for all your photos are every photo rated with one star, every photo rated with two stars, uh, every photo labeled with red. So you can really, See, like, 
you want you want to see your entire year's best photos every you just click on every photo rated with five stars and it'll show you if you did it yeah, for the yeah. whole year it and works really well i think the center of your point is like internal consistency yeah. it's not exactly what the rules are it's that you follow them which is actually good advice for life <laughs> you know there's a lot of different like rules of how to do well in in life and kind of lead a life well lived but it's sometimes not about exactly what the rules are but that you keep keep them up and that you have some sort of internal consistency yeah, and yeah. same thing goes for lightroom so all right. Next question is from Oliver Welch. He's wondering about, do I generate smart previews? And then what do I do about offloading older files to archive? So smart previews can be a way to both work offline and also speed up Lightroom. It kind of starts making uh, developing mode a little bit faster when you're working with smart preview instead of a standard preview. And it also can build up a bit of cruft because smart previews are bigger and they're inside of your catalog. Mm -hmm. So if all your files live on an external hard drive, you can start to build up your internal catalog drive. Yeah. Uh, the way I typically use smart previews is that I do all of my sorting first. And then if I'm on the go and I know my drive won't be plugged in for a while, I'll generate smart previews for all the finals. So I can just leave the drive to the side. I do all of my Lightroom rough edits, mm -hmm. which... Sometimes can take a while if there's a lot of photos. Mm -hmm. Then I have to plug the drive back in to do any Photoshop edits, which I usually do for like editorial shoots. Like if if each individual photo is really important, like so when I'm doing my wife's Instagram, one photo matters a lot as opposed to an event like a wedding. Mm -hmm. I need to just like blast through everything. And so I can't really th open things in, in Photoshop. So smart previews are a great way to speed things up a little bit, but uh, I don't rely on them. Like I, I could also kind of live without them and I would never generate them for all of the photos that I shot. Yeah. I, I would only say that um, I, when you could truly utilize the power of smart previews is I think context dependent. So for instance, do you do the majority of your flagging, uh, not just flagging, but color work um, from an iMac that's plugged into all your external hard drives via one dongle or something, right? So yeah. they all come online. Or are you going from place to place, constantly on a plane, constantly in an airport, when if it's a small enough amount of photos, it's just do I need or want to pull out an external hard drive every single time I open up my computer and open up Light Lightroom? And and it's kind of similar contextually to smart layers in Photoshop. Mm -hmm. When they in, introduced smart layers, it was when you would scale down a image or, for instance, a layer, and then rasterize it. And then if you tried to scale it back up, it would be lost data. Like you couldn't scale something down and then back up, then yeah, down, then yeah. back up. Then smart pre or smart layers come out, and all of a sudden you can. Amazing. It's like it takes care of that. But if you do that for every single thing, it's kind of like... Your files get really big. Yeah, they get really big. I also... Yeah, I don't know. No, I, I think generally... I just know personally that I, I know a decent amount about Lightroom. I've used it a ton, and I don't lean on smart previews very often. I do the majority of my work while plugged into hard drives, uh, sorry, on my iMac with, with a bunch of hard drives plugged into it. Well, and this is why a 10-minute YouTube video really can't teach you any workflow that's going to be your workflow mm -hmm. because it is, it's sort of a cheat to say like, here's the workflow for everybody, which is how I 
pitched it on YouTube, but that's just, <laughs> just cause that's what YouTube is. I kind of need to, I needed to express something that's going to work for everybody. But the truth is, is that we all do things completely differently. Like, like you're saying, you have the ability to edit at a proper workstation more often, mm-hmm. which helps in a bunch of ways that you, you lose that advantage when you're on the road more. And so you have to shift things depending on your context. Well, and it's, the, like, it's so funny. Everything is context dependent. You know, you think of like how countries are run, you know, you have a country that's mm-hmm. surrounded by ocean shoreline. How do they set up their country? Uh, probably different than the country that's completely landlocked and has no access to water or yep. oceans because now their industries depend on it. So you take the one rules from one place and apply it to the other place. Context dependent, <laughs> yeah. like you know, yeah. So do what's right, like yeah. For and a you. lot of the stuff I know that I I do have some habits that I would strongly suggest in terms of universal use, and then like just that I think this is really I'm glad I know this now, and then stuff like this I do think is so context dependent that you ask yourself should I use this, and then and then you are the person that answers it. Yeah, but we will tell you a couple of pros and cons of a couple of things. Yeah, and it's, it's the same for this goes even a little further I think with Photoshop. Photoshop has even more ways of doing things than Lightroom does. Like mm-hmm. you can achieve the same results in dozens of ways. Mm-hmm. And again, in the end, it doesn't, it's not really, really important which one you chose, but it is important that you understand some base principles, like what uh, non-destructive editing means, mm-hmm. how layers can help you accomplish that. Like if you don't understand some of these rules, then none of these paths will be the right one for you. Once you understand the the basics, then you can start to figure out how to apply the rules in the way that's going to fit your life. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, keep in mind that we're talking about Lightroom and not Capture One. Yeah. You know, like that's already a discretion we've made, you know? Yeah, totally. Okay, next question is from Nick. Uh, again, it's about previews. Do you build standard or full-size previews? I usually do standard on import. Um, lately, I've been doing embedded previews a little more often because they are way faster, but they are kind of weird. So embedded previews is a new thing with Classic where it uses the JPEGs that the camera produced so that it kind of, it almost instantly imports them, but it acts bizarre because it doesn't have access to a standard size preview. So when you try to zoom into it, it's all blurry and you, then you have to wait an extra long time for it to generate the full-size preview, longer than you usually would. And you're not seeing Lightroom's colors, you're seeing your camera's color profile. So if, for just culling, embedded previews can be really quick. You're just looking at thumbnails. If um, you need to see a little more detail when you're making your decisions, then I say standard size pre- uh, previews. And then usually I'll only do full-size previews if it's like, the final step, I'm only looking at a smaller subset of images and I need to check critical focus. Mm. And that's part and that's part of the decision making is like mm-hmm. looking at the eyeballs, making seeing if people are smiling, stuff like that. Yeah. If you're shooting like let's just say you shot an entire campaign or you shot an entire thing uh wide open too, or you had something that you knew that you were leaning on the audio autofocus system of your camera and it's you know, yeah, wide, wide open's a great reason to do hundred percent previous. Yeah, and then you more or less can do fundamental rejects based on, yeah, that's a good composition, but it's out of focus. So I get that. But like, I know from myself, uh, I almost, let's just say, I very rarely encourage for for my own workflow, full-size previews. Standard is more than good enough most of the time. My computer's fast enough that when I click zoom in, it's an eighth of a second. A lot of the time making the decisions based on 100% it's kind of can be misleading because sometimes it would have been fine at the size people are viewing it. And maybe 
if you're looking at everything at 100%, making your decisions like, oh, that one's a little out of focus on the eyes, but maybe it was the best shot and zoomed out, nobody would have noticed that focal dif- difference, yeah. then you should have chosen that other image. So I, th- I think it can kind of trick you into looking, being worried about the wrong things sometimes. Yeah, so. definitely. And and also that 100% shifts based on the resolution of your camera. So if you're shooting on a 40 megapixel camera instead of a 20 megapixel iPhone. camera, yeah. all of a sudden it's you're like you're kind of just wasting your time if you're only using all of it for web anyway because you only need to see it. Okay. Point made. Uh next one, this is a good one. I, I have a feeling you'll want to ramble on about it. <laughs> cuz cuz I do. There's a lot to be said. So this is uh that I kind of glossed over catalogs in my in my video. But do I make one big one or a new one for each project? And this question comes from Kevin. Lately, I've been doing one catalog per year for myself and for Anya. So we each have one catalog per year. I really don't like the idea of catalog per project. It seems like a relatively common thing for people to do. And that's using Lightroom wrong. That's not what Lightroom is supposed to do. Yeah, I, I, I don't see the point catalogs i know i'm kind of a weird case in this sense because i don't shoot as much as you like when you shoot a lot you put a strain on things like like for instance imagine you did full full size previews uh, or smart previews if on an annual catalog that has a couple hundred thousand images in it and you're shooting with a 5d mark IV, your catalog previews file is going to be like 300 gigabytes yeah like it, like they get big because yeah, yeah. that's a lot of data it, or 400 gigabytes my, or something. My catalog preview is my biggest file. Me too. It's my biggest folder. It's my biggest anything on my laptop. Yeah, absolutely. And I know um, what I'll talk about kind of after the questions is just general data management because I've gone through a massive data management overhaul over the last like seven months. It truly has taken me seven months because I, I just hit that problem of, so many hard drives and then backing up hard drives and what's on all of them and for how long and what's the chronology of it and, and how many catalogs and this and that, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I will have definitely some more to say after the questions just on this topic, because as of right now, I know this is kind of strange because this is where I've gotten myself after a massive attention to getting rid of as much as possible and keeping only the archivable and only the best uh, I have one single catalog for a lot, the last 15 years of photos. Now. Cool. Yeah. Well, and, and another guiding thing here isn't how often you create new catalogs. It's how many photos you shoot. Cause the idea of like, Oh, do you create a new one for every shoot? What if you shoot a hundred thousand photos in every shoot? Then, okay. Maybe you need then to create it's a bit hard, but, but you don't. Right. So typically people, I think shoot between 100 and 2000 photos per shoot. Totally. And, and just as a side, one of the things that I know I would mention later on, cause I, I really do want to dive into this more. The reason why I even took on this data management project for 15 years of photos, and this is literally all my photos and videos for the last 15 years. Well, videos in Lightroom too. Everything. I put everything in there and I've ruthlessly got rid of a lot, but there was two single things that enabled me right now to take on this project. One is high capacity hard drives, because if I had tried this consolidation project four years ago, the, I would have uh, been locked at about a three terabyte hard drive for probably like seven, 600 bucks or 500 bucks or something like, yeah. or whatever, right? And now you can get like eight terabyte hard drives for like 200 bucks. So you can take years and years ago, like drives, 500 gigabytes, one terabytes, two terabytes, mm-hmm. and consolidate a bunch of them onto one eight yeah. terabyte drive and then put them all into one catalog so you well, can actually index them and sort them with metadata and all that stuff. The other of the two things, I said high capacity hard drives was the first enabler. The second is Lightroom is 
way better at high, at managing large volume catalogs now. Do you remember when it well, first came so that's out? what I was going to ask you is what do you see the the largest catalog size before you notice a speed increment being now now like these I, days? I, well um when I started my organization of and consolidation of those uh, 15 years I had 289,000 photos mm-hmm. and now that I'm done I have 61,000. So and it handled 289 well. Yeah. And like that that was even after deleting and, and sorting and all this, it was after that many years of just accumulating. But I remember when, when Lightroom first came out, the very first version was when I was in photography school and the largest catalog size was 10,000 at that time. <laughs> oh, it like maxed out? Yeah, oh, because yeah. it wasn't written as that, a 64-bit pro- program. It didn't yeah. actually have a good way of indexing uh, file management, like talking to Finder and actually managing yeah. And read, I think most really well people creating catalogs all the time are doing it as a legacy step. I can't imagine if I had to change catalogs from one to the next for shoot to shoot to shoot, it would be like... You create big problems and you lose stuff. Oh. I mean, you, you the thing is like you start an import because you thought you're in the correct catalog and then all of a sudden... I even do this in my annual catalogs. It's been a problem. It's like, oh shit, I launched 2016 and I start an import with 2018 photos and I don't realize it till it's been an hour and now I have to export them out and re-import them. Like, I don't even like doing the annual catalogs. I, di- I did it because I was seeing some major performance issues and I wasn't really sure what else to do. Yeah. I'm still not totally convinced that solved my problem, but I don't know. I need to do some like actual I, I tests, think but I would have to hear a pretty good case as to why you'd split your catalogs per shoot or even monthly. Like it just seems like unnecessary separation and segregation of data when yeah. you could consolidate it and have all the strengths of searching it's and also, metadata. That's and kind of the point of Lightroom. Yeah. Is to it's create a like fault. a long-term searchable catalog. Yeah. It's one of the points. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it has actually become more and more of that program and it is the best it's ever been at really truly being where you should do all of your file management and your moving of files and copying of files. Whereas about five years ago, I remember copying from drive to drive. It happened to me a couple times where it actually didn't copy the files and then yeah. I deleted them. Ugh. And Lightroom's, the way it was talking to Finder and the indexings, uh, like on the on the file management end, it actually wasn't in sync with it. Yeah. And I remember screwing up a bunch of things or I would copy things and they would end up outside of a folder instead of inside the folder that yeah. I dr- dragged over there. And I was like, what the hell? But there, it's not like that anymore. There are still some folder bugs. So what actually, the, the main thing that triggered me to do the annual th- annual things, what has started to happen in mine is, you know how you I- import photos from a drive and then that drive becomes the root in your folder structure on the left, right? So it says five terabyte hard drive. That's the top level, right? And then you might have a top level that's also Macintosh HD, right? So each drive gets something. Mine has started to, after a while of being like that, all of a sudden, out of nowhere that I didn't expect, it'll put the very root as volumes and start stacking everything under that. So all of a sudden, I know it's hard to describe, but so all of a sudden external drives are like three or four layers deep. Mm. And it means that the, the, my view of my folder structure gets really wide and things it, I, this keeps happening after a few months of creating a new catalog and I'm not doing, it's never a intentional step. I never do anything mm. that I think will do that, but it started happening consistently after a few months every time. And it really makes navigating it harder and it's frustrating. 
That's a very specific issue. I, I know that's I really know. specific, and it would be even more specific to do this while we're talking about this, but show me that afterwards. I really yeah. think yeah. if it's, we can solve that. It's not happening on the machine it, in front of me right now. It would be good if, if at any other time, if we can solve that and maybe throw a little snippet up and just say, hey, if this ever happens, this is how you solve it. Because I don't know. But anyway, let's go on to the next thing. Well, the next thing you're going to touch on later, uh, this is from Landon, and it's just uh, that he's looking for a breakdown of how to organize your file system. I mean, big question, just structuring stuff. Let's let's touch on that after. That's even just part of what we we're just talking about. Yeah, yeah. Next is from Jasselin. At the end, how many photos do you give to a client? This is a very, all, this is a very general that's, question. That's on you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this totally depends on the project. What I talked about in the video was... A wedding shoot um, for weddings. I'll I'll usually tell them. I'll promise a range. Like I never say a really specific number because sometimes you'd be forcing bad photos into it just to meet a quota. Mm-hmm. Or you know, it it's better to say like it will be between this and this. And I think it's kind of personal. Some people have really different ranges. Mm-hmm. I find around a thousand to be like kind of a good max for me. So I'll usually say between like seven hundred and a thousand photos from a wedding. Because then, like, a lot of those are just sort of junk. You know, it's like, here's just stuff that happened, and I'm not too worried about the specifics of them. But it's, it's usually pretty easy to find, like, a good six, 700 photos from a wedding. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, maybe a hundred of those are, like, the good ones that, like, they might frame. Family, portraits, dancing, whatever. Yeah, um, like, weddings go into specific things, like the family orientations or group photos or people together or whatever. So yeah. sometimes compositions or... The general quality of the photo lacks uh, or, or isn't as polished as it could be, but it's the most important because of the people yeah, or the faces or the moment totally, or whatever. Because yeah. so Uncle Jack and I, Aunt Jill were in the same room at the same time for the first time in 30 years. And I get that. And I, I actually think the, the, the question is, ultimately, have you had this conversation with yourself of what kind of pressure do you want to put on yourself to deliver? Because it's essentially infinite. Like unless you, unless you, yeah, you got to set that limit. Yeah. yeah. You have to set that limit. And then have you communicated that through your pricing and expectations to the client? Because there are wedding photographers that will shoot like 60 images yeah, and, and everyone's lit and they're totally, all staged yeah. and they're all like, and that's their shit. It's like, yeah. it's the same as what was his name? Uh, Paul, uh, Paul Rand, I think the guy that gave Steve Jobs the next logo. Mm-hmm. He was hired right, because right. he only gave one logo. Yeah, it's like this is my idea. Take it or leave it. My price is you pay in full. And unless you have that conversation with yourself of what type of professional you are, what type of package, what type of pricing, you actually always ambiguously avoid it, and then you'll get yourself into dangerous, ambiguous situations of expectation. Well, and based on conversations with clients before, I've also shot as low as like 200 photos because I'm also, sometimes I'm shooting some film and the film takes up way more time. I'm going to shoot way less volume. They know that as long as everybody's aware of it going into it. And they've also got to say that, you know, my, my wedding rate can be the same rate as sometimes I'm charging for one photo, depending on the context, like in certain editorial contexts, you're just, you put all the time and effort into one picture that really matters. That's all that's happening is this one picture and totally. it's got the same value as a whole wedding, you know? So to- it just totally depends on what kind of work you're doing. So. Yeah. Like you, you could, I don't know the photographer to reference that would shoot like a million photos per wedding, but do you know who Gregory Crudson is? Uh, a photographer? Uh, no. 
there's a documentary on him that's amazing. He does the huge, like large format photography that's like still life of like entire towns. Mm-hmm. He has like a filmmaking set. Uh, so it's like there's a DP there and there's like grips and crew. And he's a photographer that shoots one single photo right. of like a street in a town with the window has a person in it that's a mailman and this and that, whatever. And imagine Gregory Crudson shooting a, a wedding. Is yeah, what I'll take I was a thousand photos. Right? Yeah. But like, you know, if, if you did, if you saw that and you're like, that's how I want my wedding to be gotten and you hired him he would come and say, I do one photo and we're going to stage it. Like I stage photos. And mm-hmm. that's what I deliver. If you want other photos, there's smartphones there. People can do it. You totally, want little yeah. moments, yeah. but it's, have you had this conversation with yourself about your business plan and your expectations? Are you a commodity photographer? Are you a luxury photographer? What do you do? This is about you and the expectations. I was just, I was just flipping through some of my folders here and actually a thousand is really on the on the high end, I may have only ever done that once. <laughs> I don't, that's like, that's pretty, that's pretty high to me. And I think, I know some people give away like 3000, they give away most of what they shot. P- please don't do that. Like don't, don't give them your worst photos. But you, you um, know, I don't know how to suggest you, if you think that is, and I don't, I don't know. Um, I would rather go on the low end. I would rather think, in, I would think focus instead of abundance or, or, or volume, but like, I don't know. Was there a thousand things to take a photo <laughs> yeah, of at maybe, that wedding? Maybe, maybe like, there's a stop motion. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking like, did you ever see uh, Sean Parker's wedding? Uh, the Game of Thrones theme? I've seen some photos from it. Yeah. Like, you crazy. can imagine yeah, right. there's a thousand things to photograph. Yeah. And they're wedding. all amazing. Yeah. Like, crazy. Do you know yeah, what totally. I mean? Yeah. Well, if the wedding How many had, people are going to the wedding? If the wedding had a thousand guests, <laughs> why not? You know? Yeah. That, that's Is true. there a photo booth? Next question is from Manuel. And it's about how do you quickly scroll through photos. <laughs> this is a hard question. Uh, so everybody has run into the thing in, in Lightroom where it just goes slowly. Uh, you know, it, it depends. Oh, you exactly. mean like actually slow? Well, just m- managing oh. the, the navigation of Lightroom. Yeah. You know, it's like either pre- previews aren't generated, maybe you're in develop mode and you're flicking through them and the previews aren't jumping in quickly enough. Okay, so um, that's so kind like, of what you're talking about. I was thinking like, you know, if you have 3,000, how do you actually go through them? There's so many. Yeah, well, yeah, there's that too. But so... There's, there's a few things here, like Lightroom's slow enough that a lot of people have resorted to a photo mechanic, like a kind of common workflow that I tried and I don't, I couldn't make it make sense, mm-hmm. is having, so photo mechanic's a third-party app that just is outside of Lightroom. It doesn't have anything to do with Lightroom. And it just lets you browse your folders without generating previews. There's no additional step, but you can see pretty high-resolution previews right away. So you can just instantly start flipping through photos quickly. Some people will cull in Photo Mechanic and then come back to Lightroom. There is an answer for you. I don't do it. I find it clunky to have two apps. Pre-generate your previews. Yeah, so... Like, wait for all this, like, standard size. If you have all standard size previews, then you should be able to flick throughout. It it becomes a problem for me. This is actually... The the generation of previews sometimes can be so slow that, like, sometimes it's, it's like, okay, we shot for two days and I'm just finally getting around to importing three or four 64 gig cards yeah. and that can be a number of hours. And I, I, I get it. I think where you, this has a lot to do with, for instance, what we'll talk about later of where does time actually get spent that what, what will lead me into the conversation about data management later is that what started it is that I opened up a hard drive. I opened up a folder that was a client job that I shot like seven years ago and I realized just by looking at these files, I was still working for the client. And I, I kind of realized how many habits I have that are hasteful in the, in the moment, that they're, they're hurried, 
and made quick in the moment. And I'm essentially saying, fuck you, future self. <laughs> Deal with it. Yeah. Later. Right. When totally, slow yeah. down. I have this mantra of sorts that I've just been pounding out in my brain, which is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Remember that constantly. Slow down. Like if it like truly is frustrating you that their previews are it's like, oh, it's not going fast. Just wait for the previews to render and 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 develop patience you know figure it out in your calendar i get it that there's so many reasons why this oh it's so hard it's so hard and i i just think you we just don't think of the huge the subject of time management very well we constantly delegate what we can hurry through now to the future self we don't know where we'll fit in our future schedule uh, schedule one thing that drives me crazy about it is that i know lightroom's importing is like it's file copying is much slower than in the finder if I just drag and drop a folder from the card to the finder, it's much faster, sometimes four or five times faster yep. than Lightroom is to import. And that can really, so yep. when, when I'm in like a crunch and I'm like, I just need these now, like I, I'm, I'm going to have a problem if I can't copy these immediately, yep. I'll drag and drop in the finder and then synchronize the folder in Lightroom. I, I don't mind doing that or that as a concept at all. You do fundamental data management, like, you know, you know, in Finder, you launch the external or you launch the main folder. You also, if it's a Thunderbolt 2 or USB-C uh, card reader, you can copy multiple cards at once mm -hmm. uh, if, if you can figure that out because those cords are good for multi-channel data transfer. So like if you did it with USB 2, there's only, it's like a two lane road versus Thunderbolt 2 is like a 10 lane road. Yeah, you know, crazy. You can have so many streams of data. So you could do that, but I think Finder, this is what we kind of have to admit is true of even though Lightroom and Adobe works really good on the Mac platform, it's not a Mac app. And what we know about Apple and how they write their own apps and how they, how they think is a top down, they write Finder to work on Macs. Mm -hmm. So we know that's a better communication system than how Adobe talks to Finder and then Finder talks to the heart. To the, the only disadvantages the with the Finder is it has less like verification. For example, verification of duplicates, right? So if you have your import interrupted, um, it can be challenging to resync it and like get it going again. Mm -hmm. Or if you import part of it in Lightroom and then want to finish the import in Finder and mm -hmm. you're renaming your files, you can't. So slow down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Easy for you to say. No, I know, but that's, um, I, 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 I mean that not in the stupid non-realist sense. I mean that in, this is a life goal of mine. Yeah. Slow down, do things with my full attention. Think clearly. Like some people think, but you're making me double, double take that. I'm like, no, all I want of my brain is single thinking, thinking actual thoughts. Am I doing this correctly? Is it going to the right place? Am I trying to do too much? I know I've done that lots of times with copying uh, one hard drive, entire hard drive to another hard drive. It'll be like an hour. It'll, it'll say that it's going to take an hour. And I'm like, I'll just do two more hard drives. Like, you know, why not? Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, and then one might fail. And I'm like, I should have just left one, yeah, right. you know, and then just done the next then the next and the next. And it's just being more intentional. Uh, I know it's easy to say, but that's my goal at least. Last question for now is from Mark. And uh, this is, do you think that there'll be another desktop version of Lightroom after Lightroom 6 where you can just buy it outright, not subscribe to Creative Cloud? The answer is probably. Uh, so this is part of the WWDC Mac announcement is that 
the App Store is bringing in Microsoft and Adobe products, including Lightroom. So you're going to be able to buy Lightroom in the Mac App Store. We don't really know what this means. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be a subscription because you can do that with the App Store or if it'll be a full purchase, but there will be some kind of different solution outside of Creative Cloud coming soon, which I was really surprised by. I like Creative Cloud to me, like when it first came out, it made so much sense because I, at that time anyway, uh, I know this is kind of a struggle people getting into the industry is like, can I pay for all my software? And when I was coming out of photography school, I definitely, I had a, a student copy of CS2. I worked on a project that was sponsored by Adobe, which gave me the CS6. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. But then you watch the releases after releases or releases and you're like, oh, I and want those features. Further and further behind, yeah. And what Creative Cloud just was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is amazing. It means... For my monthly, I get all the most up-to-date things, all the features and whatnot. And at that time, I was like, this is perfect. But now we live in such a subscription-heavy yeah. uh, time that I so badly wish I could o- just own outright some of these things. Yeah. Um, Maybe the only reason I'm, I'm totally fine with Creative Cloud is because it's, it's, it's the subscription I know I'd keep if I got rid of all the others. But if it's not your biggest priority, I can it'd be a big burden because it's a relatively expensive one, right? So to me... Honestly, if I get rid of my like Netflix, I'd get rid of my Netflix subscription before my Creative Cloud. But that's because I lean on it so heavily. And I realize for a lot of people, their creative pursuits are maybe their hobby. And so committing that kind of money to it is not, doesn't yeah. feel the same as for somebody that like uses it all the time. Well, you so. know, one thing that I, I haven't seen tested uh, as an economic concept or a pricing concept is, do you remember when we were in the era of like pre-creative cloud, when you're getting all your software on a disc, you get it once and it's locked there. You, you exist with that software until the next release, but we never really had a middle ground. We had subscription after that, but we never really had a full, full out purchase that you get a bunch of updates on until the next paid purchase. Like think of a lot of apps on your phone, a ton work like that. You know, Oh, you go into apps, the app store, it says, we have an exciting new update with all these new features. Or when the next operating system comes out, a lot of them are not paid upgrades. They just upgrade because you bought the app once. Like, Hey, thank you. Value, you know, value patron. And weird place where software developers are mixed between totally struggling because of single purchase, um, where smaller independent non Adobe developers have a really hard time surviving because you bought that app or that plugin once for $20, $50. And you're like, that was a lot. I I totally paid for this. I own it. I should use it forever. Meanwhile, the developer is sitting there not getting any new money from it until they accept for any new purchases and they need to keep updating it. They have like, and it feels like this was developed once and now I can, I should just be able to keep using it. But the truth is they need to support it because platforms changed, operating systems change. They need to keep working on it and somebody needs to pay them to keep working on it. So, the subscription model can really solve that. And for Adobe, it's made them much, much more profitable. But then also from a consumer perspective, I'm, I'm getting a bit of subscription fatigue as well. Like there can only be so many things you're paying monthly for. So I, I think we're in a time of working it out. Yeah, and I haven't really seen that option. For instance, like Apple, uh, like I have Final Cut Pro, for instance, it's a single purchase and Logic is a single purchase. But if they released a new flagship that's like, this is absolutely brand new, and it says this is a paid upgrade, like we have written rewritten this, um, buy the new one or keep well, the old one. I, 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 like Final Cut 10 yeah, from 7. Yeah. 
Yeah. Exactly. That was paid. That wasn't. A, and but I, I also don't know if like Final Cut Seven got like pushed updates or but taken the, care the of. The issue with that can be that there becomes an artificial wall of change requirements. So they'll start to like hold back updates, and they need to like save up enough of them over like a year or more. Yeah. So, or like also do a redesign that maybe it doesn't actually need a redesign. Like yeah. it can create artificial pressures to make it perceive so that the customer perceives the value of spending another hundred bucks. You know, I, I kind of find this funny. I was listening to another podcast, uh, economic one, planet money. Um, and they talked about the economics of, uh, graveyards oh. and, uh, that the economics of graveyards in Europe is completely different than here. Because essentially when you buy a plot to bury someone in, it's one time cost and it's forever. Yeah, yeah. The like grass like, has to be like mowed, software issue. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Right? And one of the things that actually... It is exactly like software development, yeah. To, totally. And one of the things actually that is a byproduct of older uh, developed parts of the world, like Europe, is they just flat out ran out of land. So they have to start digging people up after about 100 years because yeah. they had contracts <laughs> of, you know, this has been here for a long, and then right. they put them into like a group burial site, right? And when I heard that, I like the economics of like, you know, graveyards. Oh my God. But then you, you totally think this is a one-time purchase forever. Like really? Yeah. Is that grass? How many hundreds of years? Forever. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you take a civilization that's been a thousand years old or whatever, they, they're like, yeah, we know what a hundred years feels like. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that was the end of my questions, Chris. So now we can just chat about stuff. Yeah. I I know you have some, you have, a list of statements or uh, you have something you want to talk about. Well, I, I have a couple of things. One of the reasons why I was so stoked to come on uh, your platform and talk about Lightroom wasn't just Lightroom specific. Although my, all of my data management stuff I'm going to talk about, I did in Lightroom. I, I really just think it was, it's very worth me sharing some of my lessons I've learned over this, like pretty painful process of uh, data management, because I think generally as data creators right now, not just imagine photo photos and videos are data, but like, I know I am an email hoarder and like a text message hoarder and the photos that I send in text messages, uh, do I have a plan of where those might go or there, there's a big subject. There's I'll, a lot I'll of just data. say no, not to, I don't have a plan for those ones. So I, I've learned a lot of things about, about this. And one is I really started to get that same mentality of, what am I, what am I doing? Am I like, I looked at this kind of shelf of hard drives and I kind of thought, is this like, am I going to die with those hard drives? Like, is that their final state? Yeah, And that nobody else is going to go to the effort that you just did. Nobody's yeah. going to sit there for weeks of eight hour days yeah. looking through your stuff to try to make it browsable. Totally. And and I actually think this is a very worthy, worthy process to get a hold of. And probably my first entry level into this was iPhone photo management because I went crazy iPhone photos from, from day one. Both of us did. Like I, I, I love mobile photography mm-hmm. and it led me into some pretty kind of crappy data management places. Like, did I have a plan for those? Where are those photos going after I shoot? Like, do I have a plan? And truthfully at the mental health level of what this meant to me is I actually became more afraid. The more I accumulated and hoarded in terms of data and hard drives without a plan, I started to subconsciously be afraid of making more. Because I kind of just felt like I was just putting shit on the pile. Yeah, And I'm like, when is this ever going to get dealt with? Because I don't have a plan. And that has steered me into going from, yeah, 300,000 photos to like 60. And I could probably go down again to like, I probably have about 10,000 more that I could get rid of. And I know how they're all the in-betweens, 
but there was a couple there there's tons of uh photos that i might have duplicates of um there's tons of photos that are i rushed through a shoot and uh it was one of the shoots that i shot a thousand and and i mean a lot of these types of shoots but where i flagged the photos but didn't delete them there's tons of where i didn't even flag them but i got so stoked on not the first part of the day but the end of the day when the light was so good and i just got right into the catalog and then just i just picked those and i color graded them and i emailed them out and then i just didn't look at it again and the first half might all be terrible anyway (laughs) yeah and then and then there were just to test this mentality I, I I think a lot about how our mentality has changed from from analog to digital, and the the what was the selling point of digital when we first got in? It was you can take a thousand photos. Mm-hmm. What is now maybe the thing not to sell people on? You can take a thousand photos because you have to deal with those thousand mm-hmm. photos. And then, do you need a thousand photos? Like the restraint of the film shooter's mind versus the digital shooter's mind is you see more masters, you see more solid habits, you see slower thinking, more Mm -hmm. intention. You do see photos that get created that wouldn't have been created on film because of what, of what digital does. But the main thing is you, are you truly owning it? Do you know what's happening to you as you are just constantly generating these photos and all this data? And for me, I, I didn't until I put it to the test. And an example of that is, I had, let's just say in my personal life, I would, uh, six years ago, maybe it's a camping trip. A weekend I go, British Columbia, whatever, I go camping. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's 700 photos. Imagine, just, you know, that, the way that 700 photos can, I can happen. I picture that. Yeah. And you, you, you have, what you can justify from your photographic perspective is, you know, if I went through and I deleted, of the 700, I deleted, you know, 300. But there's like 400 good photos in there. You think... Do you need 400 photos? Like really, does anyone else that you went camping with really also want to manage that? And also if you want to archive it for your memory and, and what it meant to you, how many photos do you think you can get rid of that, that will do exactly the same job Mm -hmm. as what you think you're getting, you know, the value of 400, can you keep 10? Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't have the same effect. Would it have the same effect? Because if you look of the era that just we passed of our parents era and then their parents era, there is so much communication in a single photo of a first day at school or a single photo of, you know, an adventure that, that the young couple went on before they got married. And at the time there only was that single photo. But, but do you like, what would, how would we feel if, if there was a thousand options and for every one of the memories of the past that we're like, Oh, look at how sweet this is. And this is so good. If just imagine there was a thousand and then you then to reflect on how good that moment was that your parents went through, there's a thousand photos from their camping trip instead of three. Well, here's the bit of defense I have for having some extra photos. And I fully am on board with what you're saying. I get everything you're saying. There are also moments where I am happy that I saved a bunch of junk because it happens to contain some specific detail that I, later think is pretty interesting. I mean, like a good example of what I don't have now is any photos of my desk setup of my first Mac computer. Like that would have been pretty interesting. And I know the photo probably got taken, but like, I just didn't care at the time. Like that didn't matter. So you wish you had it, but realistically um, you don't. No, 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 no. I know. I know. But, but so there are times now where like, a simple example, dumb example maybe because it's specific to what's happening with us right now is renovations. And we're like, wait, what was this part of the room like before? Like, where did we have this? And like referencing 
what the state of a thing was like. And there's no emotional memory attached to that. It's not to reminisce. It's just like, oh, I just need to know that thing about how it used to be. Mm. That can be really practical. And yeah, that for like posterity yeah. or for information's sake. Yeah. Or I get it, like the utility of it. No, I'm, I'm trying to push on like the, like, what are you asking from these photos? And like, is it full documentation of, of how everything looks? Well, and I think the truth is just we're not one. at a state where we can find that balance yet. Like the dream is that if data was truly infinite and we were, when we were making all those deletions, they were all somehow reversible. It'd be a little bit different if you'd be like, I can delete 90% of my photos, but I always could recover them. We'd be thinking about it differently. It's like, it'd be fine. Like, Oh, they're archived and forgotten about in Mm. the cloud or whatever. Mm. But one big challenge is that we shoot a lot of raw photos, you and I. Mm. Um, So the data numbers haven't are affected by that like the speed of copying things and the time it Mm -hmm, takes to mm -hmm. click through it and the amount of drives that you need to own and that you need to buy a large capacity drive um raw has an effect on that that it for casual shooters that are only say using an iphone you more you like this would be a great thing about just shooting family photos if everything was jpeg every year you could just spend you you okay one year you buy a four terabyte hard drive you could just keep dumping everything on that for like 10 years Mm-hmm. of jpeg photos and like oh it's just in the archive and like you just don't worry about it and then empty, clear your phone of yeah. everything that isn't favorited um you don't have that option with raw like you always need to spend actual money it's to, it's, to have the full archive I, I will only push back like i know that the high capacity hard drives they're a, a good solution for general day management but i get it that you when you go from like actually in in my case i have for lots of my highest end video jobs, they are rented cameras, different cameras, different kind of archive solutions. The photos that I'm generally talking about, this is kind of a bizarre thing that was a result of, of how my life went for the last little bit. But like for the last, since photography school to, to now, which is about 10 years, mm-hmm. almost all my photos that I managed were on a 5D Mark II. Mm-hmm. So it's like uh, the relative difference of what the raw file size on my camera was to like measured up against the size of the hard drive and the cost of that hard drive. Yeah. That, re- that relationship has gotten better. Yeah. That's why I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah. you can manage a ton. I get that as hard drives get bigger, like, you know, Oh, this smartphone is now 70 megapixels. And it's like, and it shoots raw and it shoots volumetric and it shoots 4k video. That's yeah. Yeah. like hundred megabits per second. And it's like, it all adds up. Yeah, live, live photos. Totally. And it, it all adds up. And I totally get that. But I know for myself, I really am asking, how many can I get rid of? And it, to be honest, I, I, at, a, at a human level, mental health wise, growth as a human, it has a lot to do with letting go. Mm-hmm. Like, can you let that go? Yeah. Yeah. It's on one hand, we're talking about technical issues here, but the, the truth of how you deal with it, a lot of it it's personal. is very personal. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it can hurt. Like, for instance, um, something that I found and I, I really had to make a, a, per, a, a specific choice to this is I had shot so many photos of other people that were excellent photos that they probably didn't know about. But mm-hmm. then I found, mm-hmm. is it my job to get that photo to them? <laughs> Follow up with every single person. Everyone yeah. that, that yeah. is a big job. Yeah. I, relieved myself of that pressure because if they don't know it exists, they don't know it exists. Mm -hmm. It's fine. Get rid of it. That is a huge pressure uh, that I've had because I take, I try to get the best moments of people and 
encourage happy reactions and, and genuine connections and all these things. Oh, look at that photo of you with that other person. It's so good. So happy. And if I didn't deliver it and they don't expect it, but I didn't delete it and now I'm looking at it and it's <laughs> damn good. And the color looks good and it's tack sharp and man, they look good. And look how young they were five years ago. I should really email that to them. Mm -hmm. Should you? Maybe not. It's like, what are we doing with our lives? I guess you, there are t types of people that are meant to be historians in this way, right? Like if that's really what you are as a yeah, human, if that's your job in your friend group do, or whatever, that. Yeah. or like if that makes your heart sing, do that. But for me, it was becoming very, uh, like I was losing a sense of what am I doing? Right. Why, why? Yeah. And I know like some of the stuff that I want to pass on as general habits is to me, the other thing that made specifically iPhone photos, old photos, photos, you know, from over 10 years ago, if, if you're doing an archival project or even just generally, one of the reasons why I think consolidate, 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 get at, like get everything into one catalog is that the, the use of metadata to sort, I can't overstate the value of it. Mm -hmm. The fact that just a mess of stuff that you can sort into, like I, I built an entire uh, chronological structure of everything. So it's years and months and months. And then if you want to go into days or weeks, or if you want to go iPhone front camera, back camera, iPhone 5S versus when I upgraded to my seven, it's all there. Where I can see this in a really big way that it hasn't quite paid off for, for raw photos yet. This only benefits me on my iPhone is when I use Google photos um, to search. And I, I know uh, the Photos app does this as well. I just find mm -hmm. it doesn't work as well. So I appreciate it more in Google Photos. But when I'm like, oh, there's this one photo of my cat that was really adorable. It is so much faster that I can just type in cat and I can find that photo in a few seconds. Yeah. That starts to really change what a universal archive means. And that's when you start to appreciate everything being in one place in a huge way. Totally. We have not reached that on the desktop at all. I mean, Lightroom it used to be that we'd encourage Lightroom habits of like manually tagging all this stuff. And I'd say at this point, don't invest that time because it's going to come around through AI within a few years. Like this will be a solved problem. Just, I know just wait it out. I have one thing to add on that. It was my next point Yep, is face detection. Yeah. I do you use it in Lightroom? Cause I, I, I found it so slow that oh, I, it's slow. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but Okay, I'll show you how this is amazing. I think this is amazing. When I had the 289,000 photos that I was started with, or, you know, around there, it was, don't get lost. If I'm going to do something like, imagine I was doing full previews for everything, don't do it before you're going to delete half the catalog, you know? Right, right, delete half right, the catalog right. before you do all this stuff. Yeah. So I did things like, when I got this down to a manageable level about two months ago, I just ran face detection for everything. Yeah. Like, literally my entire catalog. And then once it's run once, then it's just in the background. And what you do then is go into any, at any time, uh, you go in and you teach the algorithm who people are. And mm -hmm. you're just like, yeah, that's me. And that's Anya. And that's my dad or that's whatever. And when you do it for a bit, especially like you, mm -hmm. it just starts to ask, right. is this you? And it doesn't confirm this yeah. is you, but I'll tell you a very practical way that this worked for me. Last month I shot a job. There was a one day job, seamless white background with a group of employees. So we were going to shoot individual shots against the solid white background of 15 people. I had to get in, get to know these people intimately of who they were, their character, what they wanted, because what we were doing is ultimately making a five image GIF of like them in front of the background doing a couple of different things because we were going to publish that to web. 
this GIF was going to go as a rollover, right? And like the web. All right. So I knew that I wanted to have that sincerity built into my delivery. So I, the client that, that I set up, uh, like that I met at the front door, they walked me in. I said, this is where I'm going to set up. They said, do you have anything else that you'd like me to do? And I said, is there any way you could go get, um, as many pieces of paper are the, as there is people and just write their name on that piece of paper. So the first photo I take of them will have their name on it. Yeah. And then face detection runs through, it gathers mm-hmm. each person says, who's this person? And you say this person, that's their, their name. I can see so the are. majority yeah. of your relationship with that client, you are making folders that you deliver, uh, collections that are their name. It's, this is that person's name. This is this person's name. And it's all organized from that point forward. And if they say, oh, I want uh, another photo of this person while you're kind of going through your deliveries, you know that person's name and you have it already metadata tagged. Every one of the photos of them has their name as a tag. So it really worked. And it was really fast. That's awesome. Um, That type of stuff does help pragmatically, practically, but also I also... uh, my dad's 65th birthday just went by and he asked me, Hey, can you make like a, a little invite that I can send out to all my friends for my birthday? I'm like, Oh, will I ever make you an invite? <laughs> because I had just done all the face detection. So every photo I've taken of him, all the photos of him as a kid or his old passport that I took with my iPhone, they were all searchable as yeah. my dad's name, Ernie. I just searched it. They all came up. I took 20 of my favorite ones took five seconds, launched into Photoshop, cut them apart, made this collage in like 40 minutes from beginning to end. I sent it to him. He's like, this is amazing. I'm like, thank you organization. You know, like that impulsively would not have been created otherwise. Mm -hmm. And it was something that added value to him. It added value to the party. We printed it out as a poster and hang out the front door. And it's like, look at all these old memories. I was like, I made that in like 40 minutes. Yeah. I thought, awesome. I love this kind of stuff. Cause a lot of those photos, if you think about it, when they're lost, what value do they have unless you can find them when you want to find them to see them or use them? And this is why AI is going to be the, the, the huge jump in it is when you don't need to invest that time. Because I found that although, although I appreciate the human tagging ability and the ability to search for names, I've just so much more often found a reason that I'm searching for a generic keyword. Yeah. That has been super useful. One that I've started doing all the time is uh, if I'm doing sky replacements, which, you know, I do relatively often if it's like yeah, the background yeah. is just so white. Skies? Yeah. I just type clouds into Google photos. You know what you got? You, you know what you should call it? Every single photo I've ever, well, what? A skybrary. <laughs> I, yes, I should. But, <laughs> but the thing is, I don't have to build this at all, right? I first just thought of this. I'm like, what if I look for clouds? without having intentionally been shooting clouds. I was like, I'm sure I've got like a nice sky somewhere. I just typed it into my phone. I'm like, oh, I have hundreds of photos of nice clouds. And I just took a photo of it. And uh, so now I've just started every time the clouds are nice, I just snap a few iPhone photos. Mm -hmm. And usually iPhone photos are good enough to put into any other photo for the sky. Yeah. So I I really am starting to build up this nice little cloud library, sky library, sky library. Um, that Google is managing for me and it's automatic. Google automatically is backing up my iPhone. So from my desktop, I can search all my iPhone photos. It's very, very useful. That's just one example, but as keywords become more useful. So again, with renovations lately, we were looking for stuff and I'm like, I, I know I took a photo of this coffee table a while ago and now I need to list it on Kijiji or whatever. And I, uh, search for like coffee table and then in Calgary, or I could even say in the neighborhood, I think, I don't know. There's much, you can get pretty specific yeah, yeah. with like where it is and all this stuff. I'm like, there it is. I found it within a few seconds that 
you shouldn't be able to find this photo. In the past, you wouldn't have been able to. Totally. And I, I appreciate this. I think the AI definitely is going to empower us. I do also think that a personal, well-thought-out, slower process teaches your brain to let go of the things, focus on others. I, I like both because I like to be accelerated by technology and slow down. And the metaphor that I've been using lately, a friend of mine said, is uh, how successful would a Formula One driver be if they went full speed into every turn? So you got to slow down sometimes, right? I think my only concern about AI is that it may not come very quickly to Lightroom Classic. CC well, Classic. it's in, whatchamacallit, it's in, in the, the cloud one. The CC. cloud one. Yeah. Because it can use the cloud. That's I'm just not using CC those. at all. I don't really know what else it can do. No, I, like I used I, it on day one, but I... I don't have a good use case for it. I can't upload enough of my photos to make it part of my workflow. So now my concern is that I'm going to start falling behind in my understanding of it because it just doesn't work when you shoot high volume raw. I know what you mean. Cloud storage isn't there yet for this in terms of bandwidth back and forth. It's hard enough with the, with, you know, everything being local. <laughs> yeah, it's hard enough with Thunderbolt, let yeah. alone. Uh... Um, so I, I know that there is a couple of different things I want to mention specifically. Um, the one is I've completely changed for my iPhone photography. I've completely changed from doing color in VSCO, for instance, mm -hmm. even though um, that was pretty good. You, you now, and I get that the app does different processing than the VSCO presets in Lightroom, but you can now sync presets into the Lightroom mobile app. So you can take your VSEO presets, I think, and, and, and sync them into the Lightroom mobile app. But I actually realized that my process of grading in VSEO, because I wasn't shooting everything in VSEO, is that I was shooting through the camera app, uploading into VSEO, and then it would duplicate yep. the file That's and it would stay in VSEO. Yep. What's the plan for that? So one second, I'll keep going because sure. I essentially exported all of the photos out of VSEO just, just in case there was something in there that I didn't have otherwise. I tested against, did I have dual amount of photos? But uh, also VSCO has an export all feature, but even when I upgrade from a 5S to a 7 Plus, which I now have, the iPhone, um, it crashes every single time when I try export all. So I had to select like a third right. of the catalog, then export that. And it was actually pretty frustrating. But that made me think, I'm treating VSCO like a hard drive. Like I'm leaving stuff there. Mm -hmm. And then it's, I'm treating iMessages like a hard drive. I'm leaving stuff there. I'm, I'm treating, and I, I, it's, do I have a way of thinking of all this? So I now have gone away from taking photos on the native camera app. I've deleted VSCO and I shoot absolutely everything in the Lightroom app because it shoots okay. DNGs. Are you shooting everything in DNGs? Yes. Wow. But... I try to be pretty ruthless now shoot with less. what I shoot. <laughs> okay. And also I try to shoot, if I shoot a lot, I instantly go through and ruthlessly delete what is not to be right. kept. Yeah. So I'm getting better at this, but this is what I really like is if you shoot in the Lightroom app, when you get back to Wi-Fi, cause I, you don't use data for this kind of stuff, but when you get back to Wi-Fi, it syncs to your creative cloud library. Mm -hmm. You then can open up your desktop and it's synced to a folder. All your Lightroom photos are in a folder on your desktop cause they get pulled down from the cloud too. You then grab them from that folder and move them where they should end up on the hard drive that they should be on. You do it actively every Sunday. I don't know. It's like whenever you do it constantly. But the thing that I really like is you can shoot to the cloud. And even if you kind of want to keep them on your phone, if you do edits on Lightroom PC of those mobile photos, Syncs those edits, edits sync right over too, right? 
So I really love the pipeline and, and workflow of this. And as of right now, I have no photos on my phone wow. and no photos in Lightroom because I'm doing this all the time. I'm cool. constantly uh, knowing where things go. And I know that all of my data management peaked on New Year's of this year is when I, when I finally got everything consolidated and into chronological order. And I was so happy when the photos I shot on New Year's the before 12 o'clock went in 2017 <laughs> December. Right. And after 12 o'clock went in January, uh, you know, 2018. And right. I, I like that I put it in the right place with, with intention. And that was really important to me. So I think the Lightroom mobile app is, is really good. I really appreciate it. And it is getting better. I like that pipeline. I like that I can shoot with presets, for instance. So you put your preset on and it shows you the preview of shooting it. And yep. I get more inspired doing that. I kind of think that Canon has missed the boat on like... Every, well, everybody except Fuji's the Fuji. only one that touches on it. But also, I think people overrate how much those are anything like a preset. They're pretty... As far as a preset goes, it's pretty toned down. Um, I do. you can make your own now. Uh, and sync them to Lightroom Mobile. Oh, yes, yes. And then shoot those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. There are specific reasons that I can't do that on my iPhone, mostly. One is that I couldn't shoot TNG because I shoot too high volume on my phone. A lot of the time, I need to launch the app instantly. So until you can set a third-party app as a camera. I so people that. ask me about this all the time. They're like, what do you think of Halide or Manual or these all these cool, or, Light, or Lightroom CC? Yeah. There's all these great uh, third-party camera apps, but I need to always launch it from the screen. I know. You have a different demand. This is the context we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So it just depends how it works, but like, I like totally. what I like what you're selling. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to buy it. I, well, I know that like you, you shoot a lot, you hustle a lot, you're constantly going and you know, I push back on you sometimes about that, you know, yeah. like slow down a bit or, that sounds or nice. do you know what I mean? Like there's certain things that we become a victim of what we think is an unchanging box that we're mm. in. And you know, I remember years ago, the best quote I heard about this is to a worm in a jar of mustard, the world is mustard. You are so blinded by what is the status quo yeah. sometimes yeah. that you can't see outside of it. Right. And I'm really trying to break these habits because I know there's habits all over the place. Being a creative that's been doing it for a bit, I now understand what people tried to teach me at the beginning, which is habits that can scale. Right. Yeah. And, well, like, and that's, oh, I'll just do whatever. It's such and a huge like, oh, thing about God. Lightroom is what you're doing the day that you open your first Lightroom catalog. Some amount of those things you will still be doing five or 10 years from now. And if all of the things you're doing are wrong, you're going to be in a mess of trouble. So try to build as many good habits early on as you possibly can. What else do you have on your list? Cause uh, we're, we're I have, time. I, I have two things that have completely changed my, my, uh, wow. That's standard a, that sounds pretty editing. good. Okay. What's number one. Okay. And then I'm going to go to a question. Okay, wait. Number one, okay, what's, no, your, no. what's the, your thing? The, what's the your two thing? things. Syncing, okay. two syncing things the color data on the photo. I don't know if you still do this. Maybe I was late to the party, but I pressed the sync button uh, in the bottom right corner. Yeah, that's what I do. Okay. The shortcut is command shift S. Oh, I didn't know that. It completely changes how you use it. Trust me. It great. is insane. Now, this is the game changer, the second one. Okay. I didn't know this existed. And what we're going to have to do is look in the Lightroom interface at the top in the menus. There is in the photo menu, you scroll down to the bottom in okay, the develop, at it. in the develop option, Got it. you fly out and there's a grayed out option. If you only have one single photo, which is match total exposures. 
Yeah, I've seen okay, this, but so I never use it. get this. Lightroom obviously knows what a balanced exposure is, right? It knows objectively what is what. So what you do is you select multiple images, just like a uh, develop. Like if you've edited one, you can copy it to another. If you shot, let's just say you shot what you thought was right and you're shooting full manual, you shoot a couple of photos and you're like, oh, it's good, it's good. But you realize, oh my God, I got to stop down a bit with my shutter. So you close down the shutter a bit, thus making the photo a little darker. You can take the better exposure and just paste it on the rest of the photos by selecting one that you want the exposure from, the rest that you want to paste it onto. And then instead of going all the way up to that menu, the command alt shift M that's the shortcut. Okay. I'm going to try this right now. Command alt shift M and Hey, that worked. So yeah, these are like bracketed shots. Um, you, you, that would be great. You don't know how valuable this really is when you just think, Oh, that exposure is better. I'd rather that exposure be on all these images. It's amazing. Yeah. I'm looking at it. So it, it is only using the, uh, exposure slider, which I like, I was kind of afraid it might, you know, move all of my, uh, highlights and shadows and stuff. And it doesn't cause that couldn't mess up other presets. Okay. I'm going to go through two more things and I'm going to go in front of you. There's one more that I just think is a standard that most people miss. And I don't know if you do this on purpose, but when you go to the develop uh, module and you get your sliders on the right, two things is, do you turn on solo mode or do you not? I do solo. So solo mode, so it collapses into one of the windows is good. The other is the standard width of the the side panel makes the sliders the size oh, that they like, are. Right. More so sensitive. if you drag it a little bit out yeah. and make the, the width of the panel about twice as wide, you actually can, you have more changeability oh, yeah, that's a good one. at a smaller level, right? Right, right? That is huge. That's absolutely huge. And then the last, and this is something in the data management uh, area that I think is the most important habit that I actually learned about going through a huge amount of files. When you go through files, Basically, you have a subconscious mechanism that is telling your brain that you're going to keep more than you're going to delete because you're flagging one at a time. So you actually are doing one at a time, one, 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 and then you might end up getting rid of 100 out of 600. Mm-hmm. What I've actually changed, this is a, this is a, a workflow that I, I think we should all try at least once. Try and flip the mentality of the assumption you're getting rid of everything but you're only going right. to keep what you choose. You? Right. And I'll show you why. I'll show you how. You take all the photos that are similar compositions because we all know what it is to launch. Imagine you have one setup with one person. You you launch the first full screen photo of that person and you don't know this yet, but there's nine of those photos. You go through and you press the right arrow, right arrow, right arrow, and you go through all nine photos and then eventually you get to the ninth and then you don't know that the 10th one's going to be different, but you change to the different 10th photo. So the set of nine you just went through is nine photos. What I think is important is for you to always know the context of that there is nine photos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what you do is you click the first one, shift click to the last Mm -hmm, one. mm -hmm. You then press X to reject all of them. Okay, okay. Then N to view them all together. And then you pick the ones you keep. Right. So I'm doing this as as you say it, and then I like unflag one. And you only unflag the ones that are going to stay. And you're free to unflag as many as you want. Right. But start with the assumption. It starts with the assumption that more are going to go than are going to stay. It's funny because I opened a random date to experiment with these things you're you're telling me. And let's look at this together. 
<laughs> I have I have 300 photos in this day. I think at a glance, you can see that most of them are exactly the same. Oh, yeah. And this is done. This is delivered to the client. I mean, I can say right now, here's three stars. I have the 10 photos I delivered to the client, and there's still 300 photos sitting in this folder. In, in real time, I want you to actually do this. Go into these, this grid, go to the very top, and just select, shift, select, mm -hmm. the like compositions. Like, if it's going to be six or seven, do it. Shift, collect, shift click them all. Okay, I got, I got that. And then press X. Done. Then N. Uh oh, wait. No, I have a filter on here. Sorry, it just hid my. Okay, yeah, X. Now I gotta. So X got it. Rejects yep. them yep. all. Yep. Got and it. And then press N, so they all show full screen in a grid. Got it. And then pick a couple that you want to keep, because your brain gets pretty true with itself here. It's like, I don't need all these. I only need. Well, I don't even need any. I don't How need any one? of these. Or yeah, there's yeah, one. They're all gone. And then let, let go. Press G to go back to the grid. Then Done. shift click the rest. Then X. Then N. And then, well, I did already select these, so I'm going to keep the ones that I select. But you know what I mean? You know what's this kind of annoying is in N, it doesn't show me my star rating. I just noticed that. So if I select a little group, press N. So for example, I was like, oh, one of these already has three stars, but then I couldn't see it. Then filter, if you know there's a bunch of starred picks that are already starred, then you can actually filter the entire grid view as anything yeah, without right, right, a, right. something on it. Oh, so I'm going to do that in real time. I'm going to say everything that is unstarred, I'm going to reject right now. <laughs> And, and then you just go through and that standard process of knowing if there's nine photos of a person, what happens a lot of the time is you start on image one and you think, is this good? And then you kind of weigh it out for everything it is. And then you see image two and subconsciously you're comparing image two to image one. Yeah. And then image yeah, three that's, that's to two and one. Challenge. Yeah, for sure. And then you end up starring and picking ones that you regret doing. Because well, you're like, so oh, there's a way better one in this set. Part of my, and you have to go back and undo part it. Part of my workflow that is slowing down, so maybe it's to your things, that as I'm looking at those nine, um, I'm always like, okay, I'm going to hold on to a few in this first pass of looking at the photos. And then like knowing that I'm going to look at them again. So I'm like delaying the decision to the next time that I go through it. Um, so that next time I am only comparing the ones where my eyes were open or like, the the three or four or five that were half decent. And then I make that rejection decision. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. th that that's how I described it in my YouTube video and is a little bit slower. It's a little less efficient than what you just described, but allows you to see each one slightly bigger, Sim similar effect in the end. You just go through a, an extra step and it takes you a little bit longer. And you could take my advice as only applying to archiving. Let's just say, right. Once you've delivered. Let's just yeah, so that's another thing we should just touch on that a bit too is the difference between during like the working process and when you're done and it's delivered because for one thing i'd say you should also hold on to a lot more rejects during the workflow stage like i have re i've regretted deleting rejects before for composite reasons especially mm -hmm. it's like oh i just i needed to extend the background an inch but i deleted the ones where the composition was a little wider and now i can't you know like it is, it's very worth it to, after you've done all the rejects, just hide them until you're done the project. No, and I, I get what you mean. There are, like, imagine we could have talked about tethering, for instance. What's yeah. a tether workflow? What's a while you're, like, pre-delivery to client workflow, post-delivery to client, archiving? Uh, I just know that until I had subconsciously changed that mentality, I, I essentially had taught my brain that more things stay than leave. Yeah. And then I was a hoarder, right? That's what <laughs> right, hoarding is. Right. And then it's everything that stays is going to be something I choose to stay. 
instead of just assuming, oh, I have all these photos, of course they're going to stay. I'm like, no, no, no. They're all rejected unless I look at them and pick ones to keep. Bring it them totally back. changed yeah. how I thought of what I keep and what I don't. Cool. So do you have any other things that you think are the most valuable insights that you can give to your audience right now? I have now? a hundred million things. I mean, we didn't, we talked a lot about data management, but we also didn't get into all the editing tools, 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 develop modules. I mean, there's a lot of like one thing I, I see not talked about enough is the interaction between exposure, contrast, highlights, shadows, white and black levels, like, and that versus curves. There's, there's so much to talk about. Like, well, I, you know, I, I, is this a three hour episode? I mean, no, that's, we're that's almost done, but next. Like- the, the, the creative, I think a lot less of what we were talking about today was creative, right? It, it's kind of on the back end of this subject. And that I think sure, deserves yeah. its own episode. And I'm totally down to come and talk about this because you and I have both admitted through several times of learning about this, that the more we learn about color, sometimes the less we know about color and the more we learn about exposure, the less we know about exposure. Like it's complicated enough that it can be fuzzy, right? I have one more unspoken thing that we kind of assumed in this. You touched on it once or twice, but that it's really good to, I think it's worth it to lean into the Lightroom folder structure. I know some people do workflows where they're like, oh, I import and then I rename the project file based on what I was shooting that day. And then I rename all the photos based on that. Um, I do everything by date. I don't rename anything contextually to what it is. So uh, the, the, my folders are what Lightroom creates by default. So there's a year folder and then a, a folder for each month that is named, you know, I'm looking at right now, I'm looking at 2016-08-22. And that's what I let it do. And any further sorting within that should be, in my opinion, should be metadata. So if you want to start saying like, these are all my photos from the lake, then you start tagging. Should be. Yeah. It should be. that. That's where the responsibility is. Like I know context uh, dependent naming was in a data management sense was discouraged right from the beginning. Like don't name your folders what yeah. they were. But then I was like, well, then how can I look at a group of folders and know what anything is? Yeah. And that's kind of a slippery one. And one thing actually that it might people might like is if you click a root folder, which has like a ton of folders or a ton of photos, and you just fly through it until you get to one of the folders or like photos that you know is in there, you right click it and you go to show selected folder in library and it'll just go to the right folder and you're in it. Yeah. The show selected folders really like I use that all the time. time. Yeah. That's just a thing that you may not be using now, but you you need to start using it. Oh, it's amazing because um, it allows that just scroll, scroll, scroll. There it is. Right click, show selected, and you're you're in the right place. Same you're for file place. naming. Uh, I rename on import to use the original ID from the camera and add the date to it. A few reasons for this. One, you want all your file names to be unique. You can start running into really complicated duplicate issues um, if you have too many files that are just the exact same name because your camera will often reset after a thousand photos. And then it's a problem. So I let Lightroom just add the date to the beginning of it, but I also don't rename the files entirely because having a unique identifier that is consistent becomes helpful. Great example is that often Lightroom gets import duplication wrong. So there's an option when you're importing to say, don't import duplicates. Sometimes I just want to confirm like, okay, is the card all there? And I put the card back in the computer just before I clear it. I'm like, I just kind of want to make sure that this card's ready. And it's like, oh, half the card's not downloaded. Then I check in Lightroom and it is downloaded. And if I let Lightroom do its thing, it'll download duplicates. Like Lightroom does create duplicates. Mm -hmm. 
So if you've renamed all your folder, all your files, you can't verify by file name. Hmm. Same with when I'm exporting for the client and I put photos in Dropbox, that's how I deliver. If I've renamed all the files to a totally unique file name hmm. that has no relationship to what they are in Lightroom, I can't go back and cross-reference it when they're like, oh, I loved the, the folder portrait one, two, three. You're like, oh, that, that's not what it's named in my catalog. So you can't go back and reference it. So there, there's actually the, like, there's two more things that I actually just want to mention. One, I've been using this kind of universally. I never really thought about this until maybe the last year is invert selection. So I don't think about that at all. Go what into you, the grid mode. About? Okay. Yes. Select a photo, go into the edit menu. And in the middle of the edit menu, it says invert selection, click it. And it will give you the opposite of what you say. Hey, I've never used that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. It's all over programs. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. But uh, I knew that that was a really good thing because imagine you have an entire catalog and I know there's other ways to do this, but you have like a flag or you, you know which ones you want to keep and it's just these ones. You just quick shift, click them and then just invert and get rid of the rest, mm -hmm. right? Like if it's everything else, I like that. And then there was one last thing that um, if you don't follow appropriate, let's just say chronological naming or folder structure, like subfolder structure, and it's gotten away from you as it did for me. Lightroom is a bit annoying because it doesn't have the ability to copy and paste folders. Like if you, let's just imagine you copied, uh, you made a January and February folder and you wanted to copy and paste it and then just rename it, you know, to be, you know, you can't do that. So one thing I realized as a workaround of this is the synchronize function. So you go into finder, you create one dash January, two dash February, all the way through December yep. and you copy and paste them in in the entire library everywhere they would need to be. And then all you do is you go to the root folder in Lightroom and you say synchronize and that just brings all of those subfolders into your Lightroom catalog. Then you just copy and click and drag into them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Synchronize can be really helpful for like, there are times I would have been stuck and screwed if I hadn't done synchronize. Yeah. And I, I think, um, I actually learned that the hard way that I didn't think of that until about a month into my data management when I knew I had to impose a structure I didn't have on my files. And I just literally manually created January, February, all the way to December a bunch of times in Lightroom. Like add new subfolder, call it January, add new subfolder, call it February, instead of just doing it once for all the years in Finder and then syncing for all the, all the folders. And they all just, they all come up. That's a good one. We're out of time. And I just so appreciate being on this podcast. I love that I learned some lessons that I can give to some of you people. And I am actually going to be writing a blog on some of these habits, some of the best things I've learned from this data management. If you want to follow up on it, my name is Chris Dowsett. The link to any of that will be in the show notes. But that blog is going to be for you. I don't write that for me anymore because I've learned this lessons. I hope that you don't have 15 years of hoarding and you don't stress <laughs> sure yourself out, out there do. into a non-creative zone. Like I said, it turned me into a bit of a, I had a fear of creating more that yeah. I had to deal with. The sooner we wrangle with this kind of stuff, the better and slowing down is moving, moving smooth. So Thank you, Tyler. I appreciate being on the podcast so much. And That's great. I think we can follow up on this a lot. I also think all of a sudden I start realizing how much there is to talk about in Photoshop and in other, all the other programs. And like, I also just have to do an episode about like power user Mac tips as well. And like, uh, to-do lists and, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot, but, uh, thanks Chris. This was a really good episode. Thank you so much, man. <laughs>